Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Here we are on Wednesday night Bible study. Thank you for being here. If you'll stand with me and turn to the book of Acts, chapter number two, here this evening. Acts chapter number two. We are in our series on the book of Acts. Amen. This is our sixth lesson. We haven't got too far, but we'll get there. Acts chapter two, verse 22. We'd like to start tonight. I apologize for the roughness of my voice, just as it is right now. Verse 22 says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it tonight for this sixth lesson in our series on the book of Acts like to simply entitle this Jesus the Messiah Jesus the Messiah and as I'm also thinking of it uh, this coming Sunday after our morning service we will be having a meeting for all those that are going uh, to camp kind of give you a little instruction of uh, dress code some basic rules uh, that they prescribe and uh, uh, also I'm going to be handing out a nice little map for those that have never been you'll know where the cafeteria and the gymnasium and church and everything be held because it is quite a spread out campgrounds and so maybe that'll be of some help to you amen let's pray tonight father i love you god i thank you jesus god for being able to be in this place i pray oh lord anoint lord jesus the ears of each and every individual help me god lord today to lord portray the word of the lord jesus in the rightly fashion pray oh god today god bless your people lord and their faithfulness to the house of god i pray oh lord god your word is alive god and so let it be god unto us this evening God will not fail to thank you or praise you for it in the lovely name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen and amen. The church say amen. Amen. You may be seated tonight in Jesus' name. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. It's been a few weeks since we visited here, since uh, my family has been absent for a couple weeks and out of the state. But a few weeks ago, if you will remember, I told you that whenever Peter came to give his message on the day of Pentecost that he was really putting together a very masterful message and sermon here because he was going to piece together a very important revelation for his listeners and that revelation that he was going to come to a climax at was this that is those that heard him and the people in the crowd he was going to bring them to an understanding that not only did, according to their understanding and mind, crucify Jesus, uh, the man, but they had crucified Jesus, the one that was Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. They had crucified the Messiah that they had been looking for. And whenever they would have that understanding that it was more than just a common man that they had crucified, but they had crucified the Messiah that they were looking for, that no doubt they would have feelings of guilt feelings of shame wanting to somehow turn around the actions that they have done and based then upon that premise 
uh, Peter would give them direction how to rid themselves of their sin and how to rid themselves of their shame. The Bible says in John 10 and verse 24, this is a time in which the Lord had had uh, some conversations with scribes and Pharisees and those of his day. But the Bible says, Then came the Jews round about him, speaking of Jesus, and said to him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, which is the anointed or the Messiah, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works, everybody say works. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. This is just what Peter has told the crowd even on the day of Pentecost. That there was one, Jesus of Nazareth, that was approved of God. And he was approved of God or authenticated of God by the many signs, miracles, and wonders that this man, Jesus Christ, had done. Amen. Among them. Because this was God working through the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. There was nothing, Jesus said, there's nothing that I do that my father hasn't bade me to do or asked of me to do. If you see me do it, it's the work of him doing it through me and working through me. And so first of all, Peter is building his case. He's building his case to the common man that Jesus was more than just a man that was trying to be like God. That was what many tried to put upon Christ or upon Jesus rather, that he was just a man that was trying to be like God. But here Peter is building the case that he wasn't just a man trying to be like God, but he was in fact the God-man. He was the God-man. He, he was God. He had made himself a body to indwell that was known as Jesus Christ. And as some state and many times stated, well, God made himself a man, a fleshly human body. But to continue in John 10, Jesus' response to these Jews about whether or not he was the Christ, one of the things that he told them was in John 10, 30, very popular verse. He said, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And the Bible says the Jews then took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shewed you from my Father. He says, For which of those do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, For a good work. We stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Well, what Jesus was doing here in the Scripture, he was trying to let them know that he was the great God, the great God of heaven. I and my Father are one, he says. He was the great God of heaven that had come down in the form or in the likeness of a man. They were not going to stone him, they said, for one of the works, one of the signs, one of the miracles, or one of the wonders. They weren't going to stone him for those things. But according to the words, break out in streams in the desert. Isaiah's prophesying there will be a day when that invisible God that you praise and worship will come. And when he comes, he's going to open the eyes of the blind. He is going to cause the dumb, the mute to speak. He is going to come and cause the lame to be healed. And they're going to walk. The deaf will hear. You will see that when your God comes among you. Well, interestingly enough, when we get in the New Testament Scripture, 
There is somebody that's going around these villages and towns along seashores, upon mountains. And guess what this person is doing? His name is Jesus. And he is opening the eyes of the blind. He's opening up the deaf ear. He's causing the lame to walk. The mute mouth can now speak. And what does this look like? This looks like the very description that Isaiah said. When all of this happens, you know that your God has come. This was not another man that could duplicate what their God was going to do. This was their God in flesh and blood doing what Isaiah had prophesied about. Blind eyes being opened, the lame walking, all these things. And he came for the purpose of saving his people from their sins, just like Isaiah said. That God, when he comes, will save you. And so all these works and miracles that they did not stone him over were the very things that gave credence to who this man was. It was the very things that testified him to be the God that even Isaiah had prophesied about. And so, because the reason is, Jesus didn't do these things in a corner somewhere. He didn't do them hidden outside of the eye of the public. No, people knew that Jesus worked signs and miracles because he had done many of them right there in their midst in the presence of, as the saying is, in the presence of God and everybody. <laughs> in John 11, in verse 46, the Bible says, just proof that he did this in their sight. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. And so the chief priests and those that are gathered here, even the Pharisees, they plainly admit and identify that many miracles have been done by Jesus. And according to Isaiah, when you recognize that, know that your God has come. And so in a very practical sense tonight, talking about miracles wonders and signs to just to be very practical for a moment whenever we talk about a sign a sign this is very practical a sign is not the thing itself but a sign points you to something normally for instance you may be looking for a restroom in a public place but when you find the sign that sign is simply pointing you in the right direction the sign is not a means to the end. When you arrived at the sign, it's not like, here we go, this is what I needed. No, the sign is just pointing you into the right direction. And so when Christ came with his miracles and his wonders, and for our purpose, his signs, they were trying to point the people in the direction, amen, of really who he was. The Bible says that Jesus even said in John 10, 37, he says, if I do not the works of my father, he said, believe me not. In other words, in other words, believe me for my works. Believe me because of the miracle, because of the sign, because of the wonder. And if you believe, he's basically telling them, if you do believe, it'll be due to these works, this sign and this wonder and this miracle. That, that, that none should be doing what I'm doing except that person be God. Unless that person be the man himself. And so these things, these signs, miracles, and wonders that were to approve the man, Jesus Christ, were also 
grounds to indict humanity for a great sin of rejecting then their God. Those signs gave proof who God was according to Isaiah. They seen it, but they still rejected Him as God. Amen. And here's something for certain. Their rejection could not because they didn't have enough evidence. There wasn't enough revelation. The Bible says in John 15, verses 23 through 25, got a lot of scripture for you. Welcome to Bible study. And he that hateth me hateth my father also, Jesus says. He says, if I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that it is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. He said, if I just came and did what everybody else could do, no problem. But I came and did what only one person was ever ascribed to being able to do, and that was their God. He says, still though, they reject me, they've seen me, they hated me, and they hate me without a cause because I've given them all the proof. I'm given all the evidence that they have needed. Amen. And so the only thing that can come about is, as another writer has said, basically these people have loved darkness rather than light. The Bible says because their deeds were evil. And here's the fact of the matter. There is only one way to deal with evil. There's no alternate way to deal with evil at this particular juncture in the road than by the death of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Luke 24 and verse 45, Then opened he their understanding, thank you, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, amen, prior to the ascension, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved. Everybody say behooved. Let's define behooved. It means it was necessary. It was binding. It must be. It needs be. So thus it behooved or it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. When we talk about the suffering and the crucifix and the resurrection, that already supposes a burial in between. It was necessary then. For the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. In other words, the death, burial, and resurrection had to happen, needed to happen, so that repentance and remission of sins could be preached in Jerusalem. Why, Brother McGee? Because the basis for our message of, re of repentance and baptism and the infilling of the Holy Ghost is all based upon His death and His burial and His resurrection. So it was needful. It was absolutely necessary for those things to happen so we could have credence to the message that you and I preach. They must happen. One man said it best, and it's a little bit of a tongue twister, but if you listen to it, you'll get the gist of it. Major N. Thomas summed it up like this. He said... He had to be what he was in order to do what he did. He had to do what he did in order that we might have what he is. And we must have what he is in order to be what he was. And that's it summed up in a tongue twister. Now with that being said, there are certain aspects 
of God's will that is difficult for us to reason with. If Isaiah says that his ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts, there are going to be some things that are a little difficult for us to reach concerning the mind of God. But we just got to trust the designer of the plan. If I may tonight, it, it may for some be hard to realize that although Jesus' crucifix was cruel and that it was carried out by the wicked hands of men as our scripture setting told us, it also tells us that that whole scenario was directed and in direct line with the will, the determinate counsel, and the foreknowledge of God. Now that might be hard to deal with. That we say the wicked men killed him and they crucified him and that this was a part of the determinate purpose and will of God because we look at it as being so horrible. Jesus' crucifix, according to the scripture there in Acts, was actually, in verse 23, was actually the predetermined will of God. Amen. In Isaiah 53 and 10, the Bible says, and it pleased the Lord. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. And the scripture goes on. It pleased the Lord. In other words, the crucifix was not a plan B. Crucifix wasn't a plan B. It wasn't a last minute decision that had to be made. Amen. It wasn't that this just all of a sudden just came to a head and now we're going to have to think about how we're going to handle it. No, 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 no. It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't something that was just being thought of in the moment. It wasn't the best that they could come up with. Crucifix wasn't. No, it was God's determinate counsel according to Scripture. It was God's will that was in play even before the world began. Now that's heavy. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 1.9, it says, Who, speaking of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. What is Paul telling Timothy? Paul's telling Timothy, God had a purpose. God had grace. That purpose and that grace was in the man, Christ Jesus. Paul tells Timothy that all of this was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world even began. Wait a minute. Christ Jesus? You're talking about the man that had about 33 and a half years here upon the earth. All of that was given to us in him, but before the world began. Now, he's only 33 and a half years old. The world is a whole lot going to bruise your head all the way back in the garden. God already had a plan. Yes, he did. He already had a plan. And so, Calvary was already on his mind. And so this whole idea of crucifix, something that was already in the counsel and the purpose of God. The book of Acts even reiterates it in Acts 4 and verse 27. The Bible says, For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. They have gathered against this child Jesus for, look, to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine before to be done. 
know what they're saying? Saying what's about ready to be played out is something that's already been etched in the purpose and the will of God beforehand, but it's just now to be done. It was already designed back then, but it's taking place right now. And so with that being said, with good reason, the people of Jesus' day did not recognize him as their Messiah. Did not recognize him as their God laid upon Jesus. And it was laid upon Jesus because Jesus, in the purpose of God, was already going to be nailed to a tree. He knew where to lay it because he knew where that was going, where that was heading. He said, I'm laying the iniquity of us all on that man because I got decided that man already from the foundation of the world to be put to a tree. So that when that man goes to the tree, your sin goes there too. Had all of this stage, it would all be accomplished through the crucifix of the cross, through the crucifix of the man on the cross. And it would take place though by the hands of the people, the people that did not recognize him to be their Messiah. The people that did not recognize him as their God. You say, well, Brother McGee, how in the world could they be responsible? Because you look at your scripture, you look back here at Acts chapter number 2 and verses 23 and verse number 24. He basically tells us that he delivered, he delivered this man, Jesus, unto the people, but they took him. He delivered him, but they took the initiative also to take him. And so they are still responsible. Had they known who he was, they would not have crucified the Lord. So with great purpose, they did not recognize him. And as a result of all of these things then taking place, guess what happens? The will of God. God, though ordained it from the foundation of the world, he used these people and gave them the power to do what they did to Christ. As a matter of fact, if you do some reading in John chapter 19, you'll come along the story where Jesus is being tried before Pilate and Pilate gets a little frustrated and aggravated because he asked the Lord a question the Lord did not respond and he's a little upset and so Pilate starts toting you know his office and everything he says don't you know I got power to release you or I got power to take your life and then the Lord responds he said there's no power for you to take my life except it be given to you from heaven from above You know what he's saying? He's saying, you're looking at me in a very, a very awful situation here. Like, you know, this is a break one way or the other. It could just go down south. I'm in the hands of Pilate. He said, no. He said, I might be in the hands of Pilate, but Pilate is in the hands of God. Mm. So, so we understand then all of this, all of this is really within the hands of the master. And so since the crucifix was a part of the plan of God, Pilate's given the authority by God to be able to release Christ into the hands of the people that wanted to do crucifixion, do as they wished with the Lord. So when we think about crucifix, sometimes hard to take in, into consideration whenever we think about all these things, can really be understood on two fronts, two different fronts. And our understanding may be different based upon whether we're an unbeliever or whether we're a believer. All right? Because for those Peter was addressing in Acts 2, which would be mostly unbelievers, he wanted them to realize that their sin necessitated a crucified 
Christ. He wanted them to feel responsible for the horrid deed of sending an innocent man to the tree. But as believers, having already understood the crucifix, that my sin necessitated a crucifix. It had to be dealt with. Already understanding that as a believer, when I look at the crucifix, I understand this through Scripture. That God ordained the crucifix from the foundation of the world in order to take care of my sin problem. Uh-huh. As an unbeliever, I got to feel the weight that I had a hand in putting him there and that my sin drove him there. On the opposite side of Calvary, when I've been redeemed by his blood and I'm filled with his spirit, I understand that was a plan God had all the way back at the beginning just so that he could take care of me and my sin and redeem me. See, that takes Jesus from more mere man but to a Messiah, a Savior. Amen. Not just my problem, everybody's sin problem. Now, 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 here we go. The Old Testament prophesied, and it's important for a bit to understand Peter dealing with these two terms of Jesus and Christ. And while he's doing this at first, he's dealing with them separately. He's talking about Jesus of Nazareth, and then he talks about Christ. And then when it's on the end, he's going to smack them both together. Jesus Christ. He's doing that with reason. Again, remember, Jesus is the name of the man, but Christ is the office or robe that he's filling in. And so in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah or that Christ would rise from the dead. That's what Peter's going to allude to here in the Psalms that David wrote up here in just a little bit. The Bible, though, we understand in New Testament Scripture that Jesus had risen from the dead. <laughs> and so the deducement, natural deducement is this, that Jesus must be the prophesied Messiah. Because since Messiah must rise from the dead, and since Jesus rose from the dead, it follows that Jesus must be the Messiah and was already the Messiah during his earthly life. And so Peter told them, look at it now, verse 24. Peter basically told them, you put him to death. Remember, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. You put him to death, but then he says, but God raised him up. And I like this. This is awesome to me. He says, because it was not possible for him to be holding by it. That's awesome. Look at your neighbor and say, that's awesome. He said, God raised him up because Jesus, it wasn't even, everybody say it wasn't even possible. It wasn't even possible for him to be held by death. God, that's awesome. It wasn't possible. Well, say, how in the world did this whole thing happen? Remember, Christ gave up his life. Nobody really took it from him. He gave up the ghost. He, why? Because death couldn't hold him. You know what he was doing? It's like, put me in chains, put me in the grave. But I'm only here because I choose to be. Oh, God. That's, that's awesome. That's the reason why whenever he decided on the third day to get up, he didn't have to ask anybody's permission. See ya. I chose to be here now. I choose not to be. 
And so it's with all of this that Peter takes his audience then back to Psalms. Psalm 16, Psalms 110, Psalms 132. He starts to quote the psalmist David, particularly Psalms 16, verses 8 through 11. He does that in verses 25 through 28 of Acts 2. Peter quoted this psalm, which he proves in verse 20. This is Peter, he just quoted what, what David had said. He said, men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you. Because until this moment in time, they had a misconception about what David was talking about. They thought David was talking about himself. Lord, you're not going to let David, David see corruption. You're not going to allow David's soul to be holding in hell. And the word hell there is Hades, which is, Hades, which is the abode of the dead. He said, you, you're not going to allow David to be that. But, but, but Peter says, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. That he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day in other words Peter saying David cannot be talking about his own soul being left in hell or his his body not seeing corruption because we all know David's dead and his sepulcher is right over here so his body is deteriorating uh huh He's in the place of the abode of the dead even as we speak. We know this cannot be talking about David. So Peter told them back in verse 25 that David was speaking, David was speaking about Jesus. Now watch this, verse, verse 30 of Acts 2. Therefore, Peter continues, therefore being a prophet. Who's a prophet? He's speaking of David. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. He says, David, whenever he was writing the Psalm 16, wasn't writing about himself, but being a prophet. Because of what he had already experienced and the conversations he had already had with God. He was a prophet and he was talking about Jesus. How Jesus' body wouldn't see corruption. And how Jesus would not be left in that abode of the dead. But Psalm 16, Peter was telling the people, was David was a prophet and he was talking to them about Jesus. Now how, how did David, and I know I got a lot of scripture, I know. Forgive me, don't forgive me. Samuel, 2 Samuel, first chapter 7 and verse 11. This is where David got all this information that he spoke of in Psalm 16. The Bible says, And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over Israel, over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. David is king. Amen. God's going to make David an house. And when thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed after thee. I'm going to set up a seed after thee. You're going to have children, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Skip down to verse 16. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Now, well, we got to realize, though, the Scripture here has a dual fulfillment. We can plainly see that, no doubt, perhaps this is talking about Solomon, who is the son of David, who will establish the temple, the house of the Lord, who does come from the bowels, if you will, or the loins of his father. That seems to fit the bill pretty good 
until we get to the place where God says, I'll establish your kingdom and your throne forever. Uh Uh-huh. Everything seems to apply. But we're talking about an everlasting throne. We're talking about an everlasting kingdom. Amen. And so this applying to Solomon looks very well, and I believe a portion of it does. But there's a dual fulfillment here whenever we talk about a kingdom and a throne that is established forever. Because in another sense, Jesus would be in the lineage of David. And so likewise, he would come from the loins of David and be the seed of David, the pedigree, if you will, of David. And he, Jesus, would establish a kingdom. But unlike Solomon, his kingdom would be forever. And his kingdom would be everlasting. And his throne would be everlasting. That's how Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, whenever it tells us of that child that is to be born of the virgin, it tells us very plainly that the government shall be upon what? His shoulder. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no no end. And so whenever David is speaking all this in the Psalms, he's not speaking of himself, but he's speaking about Jesus. And Peter wants to relay that to the people that's been living under the misconception that all of this has been about David. He says, no, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus of Nazareth. Someone say amen. So, now no. Verses 25 through 29, David's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. But then he switches in verses 30 and 31. And he's talking to them. He tells them that David was talking about Christ. You watching me? So he's talking about Jesus in 25 through 29. Jesus happened to suffer and die by the determinate counsel of God and all these things. But then he has David talking about Christ in verses 30 and 31. Look at it. The Bible says he, which is God, would raise up Christ to sit on David's throne. He, now referring to David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. His flesh wouldn't see corruption. His soul wouldn't be left in hell. Amen. So Christ, look now, Christ, again, is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the designation of an office. A word that means the anointed. Or a word that means the Messiah. And so Peter brings this message about Jesus full circle. He has David talking about Jesus. And then he has David talking about Christ. And then Peter marries these two concepts together to bring the revelation that needed to be brought to the people that day that Peter is talking about Christ the Messiah in verses 30 and 31 and then look at verse number 32. Boom, here it is. He's talking about Christ the Messiah and then boom, he says, this Jesus. He's talking about Christ and when he's talking about Christ, he says, this Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. What are you saying? What are you saying, Peter? He's saying this person that has been somehow prophesied of old as being the Messiah, as being the anointed, as being the Christ that even David spoke of. He says, I'm declaring to you that that Messiah, that Christ is Jesus. And suddenly in their mind, they realize we have crucified our Messiah. We have put our Messiah on the cross. We have... No, no, no. 
He said that God would raise up Christ. And verse 32, he said, Jesus hath God raised up. It's not that God raised up two individuals. God raised up Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Jesus, who was the Messiah. And so note what he says in verse 33 of Acts 2. He basically tells them this promise of the Father, the Holy Ghost that you see here today, what you see, what you hear happening today, the things that you were amazed about, the things that some of you were doubting about, the things that some of you were wondering about. He says all of this that is happening right here today, all of this has been made possible because of that same man, Jesus Christ. All of this is due to Jesus Christ. All of this is due to the Messiah that you crucified. This all happened, as one man put it, that Christ's humanity was raised to the throne because his humanity stooped to a cross first. Verse 34, Acts 2, David isn't the one ascending to the heavens. David isn't the one ascending to the throne. Jesus did. And the foes that were to become his footstool Huh? The foes that were to become his footstool. Any time a victor would put his foot on the neck of the one he had victory over, it was a picture of subjection of the one that was at the mercy of the victor. And again, we could go back to Genesis 3 with the bruised heel and the bruised head scenario. The Bible tells us though in Acts 2.36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. Peter's climax of his sermon that day was you crucified your Messiah. Imagine the guilt you would feel pondering that you've seen the signs and the miracles that Isaiah prophesied of but you rejected him you put him on a tree nails through whenever they were others maybe hoping that he would be released we said don't do it let's crucify how do you think that would set with your heart and mind to understand the one that they prophesied to be the hope that you eradicated it from the landscape of the land of that day and so now the people are dealing with the fact we crucified our Messiah. That this Jesus, same Jesus Christ, the same man, because when we say Jesus, people of that day would automatically go to the carpenter's son. The man, Jesus. Whenever you threw around the term of Christ, though, they're thinking about their Messiah. They're thinking about their Savior. They're thinking about the anointed one. It was a very unlikely thing for them to smash both terms together. To think of the carpenter's son as being their savior. The carpenter's son being their hope. Not only just that, but also their Lord. 
And so with this same Jesus Christ being their, 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 their Lord and also their Christ, something happens here. Because when we speak about Lord, we're talking about Master. When we speak about Lord of the Old Testament, we're talking about God. But whenever we start talking about Christ, we're talking about Messiah. We're, we're, we're talking about these things. And so we see pictured right in Christ, the God side nature of Christ and the man side nature of Christ. When we talk about Him being a man, Jesus, we think of a man. He became a brother, a relative to us all. Amen. Because He made Himself a body and the likeness of, of humanity and so we think about a man but when we think about Christ the label of his office we think about him being the redeemer and when we think about the title of the Lord we think about him being king he said you've taken this same Jesus Christ both Lord King and Christ he is the redeemer of you all and that will lead us all close that will lead us into next week because they're in a very good spot here pondering all these things this is Jesus Christ not Jesus and Christ but Jesus Christ they come to a term that look what we've done and now they're in a very vulnerable place what can we do to fix what we've done that's the reason why in the next verse where we start next week that question is going to be men and brethren what shall we do see because everybody's journey is the same folks we all got to come to a place that we realize that we were just as much as responsible as anybody else for putting him on the tree that regardless who we are what our walk of life may be viewed as or like every single one of us Alexis have all had the hammer so to speak in our hand for driving the nails through the hands and through the feet we all that's what Peter's trying to do get everybody closed into the same space to understand I am responsible just like everybody else and feeling so bad and overwhelmed with that guilt to a place what can I do to change it and that's where Peter comes with his response we call Acts you know there's so much more to Acts 2 than Acts 2.38 it's good don't get me wrong man I'll preach it every day but that was just that was just the answer to a response that came from a message someone hear me that was just the answer to a response that came from a message. We'll look at that next week. The amazing thing is, if you look through Acts, that little bit of spot we've just been through tonight, 22 on to 36. You look at it all, <laughs> and Peter's even emphasizing this. Everything that happened is all the work of God. Huh? It was all the work of of God God sent a man Christ that was approved by signs miracles and wonders that was God's idea <laughs> God delivered him and the people took him God empowered them to have the power to be capable to do what they did but God raised him up after they had quote unquote supposedly put him down God was behind all of it and you know, what that, you know what that meant for these people who said, I'm a believer in Christ, I'm a Pharisee, or I'm this or that. I know the law, I can quote it frontwards and backwards. I'm so close to God. You know what this did for them? It showed them in reality how far from God they were. And see, that's where we are in this generation. Let me tell you, the, 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 the journey is just the same. We got, this is the, this is the whole crux of the matter. We got to get people to a place to realize how far from God they really are 
before they can get as close to Him as they need to be. Amen. Stand with me and I'll close here this evening. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.